0: For the last two weeks, we've been looking at uh, generosity and gratitude, partly in relationship to the Thanksgiving holiday. And we've been particularly um, looking at ways to practice uh, generosity and gratitude. And how many of you have done some of that practice in the last two weeks? So, quite a number. And I've been continuing my focused uh, generosity practice in relationship to driving telemarketers and then finding multiple ways to practice generosity each day as much as possible, uh, taking on three to five a day. Anyway, we we looked at multiple ways to practice. And uh, you may remember that uh, two weeks ago when I brought up the theme of generosity, I mentioned that it's actually the first of the qualities in the grouping called the the paramis, which could be translated as virtues or perfections. And these are the qualities that in the tradition, when developed, lead one to awakening and also are expressions of awakening. And generosity is the first of these, Uh, and a real foundation. And again, as we explored in the last weeks, generosity is not simply material giving, in fact, that is actually a small part of it, but it's essentially in the tradition, you remember there were expressions of the great gift of fearlessness that one gives to others. And we, one really gives the gifts of one's own being, one's own qualities, as well as the gift in the tradition of the teachings and practices related to freedom, that these were also taken as uh, manifestations of generosity. And these uh, qualities on the list um, could be a way of focusing one's practice over many weeks or many months or years. they are qualities like developing one's ethical integrity to a higher degree, developing wisdom, developing determination, developing one's kind heart. And today I want to, in a way, continue with that theme of working with the paramis just as generosity is the first of the paramis. Today I want to talk about the last of the paramis. It doesn't mean we've done all the others but the last of them is equanimity and I want to talk about the quality of equanimity or balance in one's mind and particularly how to practice and I'm thinking of doing this over two weeks because it's a quite beautiful, powerful, and profound subject as to what equanimity is and how we cultivate it. And what I wanna to do today is particularly point to the nature of equanimity and, the, and a number of ways that we can uh, practice it, as well as some of the possible distortions of uh, thinking that we're cultivating equanimity, some of the issues or problems that come up in that practice, and I was thinking that in many ways, what we do at the end of the morning practice session, when we listen to other people speak, and sometimes their expressions of difficulty, so you know, was just found uh, dead, right? And uh, you know, I was thinking of there's a memorial coming up for a close friend of mine, the weekend after the coming weekend, also for his wife who was totally healthy in the morning and by the evening she had died. I think of a ruptured uh, artery, right? And we'll have a memorial. And And how do we stay balanced with everything that's happening? And I think even listening to the different accounts, you know, the, the uh, difficult experiences, the more wonderful experiences for which we're grateful. How do we Stay balanced with all of that, and uh, that's so. That's what we'll explore this week, and I think next week I'll particularly focus on the link between equanimity and the open heart, the kind heart. Because equanimity is a little bit more of a wisdom practice, and how does that connect it, How does that get connected with kindness and compassion, more heart qualities? So we, we may remember that one of the ways that we most deeply look at this practice that we're we're doing of cultivating mindfulness and wisdom and the open heart, one of the ways it's it's most centrally talked about is as the cultivation of both wisdom and compassion or clear seeing, insight, and the kind heart. As well, I would also add that sense of... uh, um, bringing in skillful action as well. I, th- I often think of there being three main areas that we train in, developing insight and wisdom, developing the open and kind heart, and developing skillful action, including in challenging situations. And then sometimes, as many of you know, likened, the whole of the teachings are likened to a bird which has two wings and only flies when both of them are functioning. There's, And one wing is wisdom and one wing is compassion. And, and in a way that relates could, could be to the mind on the one hand and the heart on the other. And I often think, well, what about the body? And we have the body of the heart, uh, the body of the, uh, of the bird as um, more the body component. And I think of skillful action as often bringing in that element of body and action. So that's one way of looking at it. That's been very, very uh, traditional. And so what what does equanimity mean? And I was thinking of this particularly in light of asking what equanimity means in the light of all sorts of challenging and sometimes disturbing things happen in the world, right? Or in our lives, right? What does equanimity mean when we hear the news? right? News is frightful at times, you know, news of what? Uh, A new missile, you know, tested in by North Korea that has the potential to reach the East Coast, right? These are bringing up concerns and fears that people haven't had for many decades, right? Or, you know, the, um, you know, the, you know, what's happening with the uh, federal government, and you know, I was reading a um, article uh, on the tax bill by Paul Krugman who talked about it as the, uh, the greatest tax scam in history and then basic redistribution from the less well-off and middle-class to the wealthy, right? And I, I should say that in terms of hearing all sides I read Paul Krugman, but I also get, I actually get daily uh, emails from the White House, which I read. Uh, Just to, so just, you know, we wanna have uh, all perspectives are welcome as long as they're treated with respect and listened to. So, um, but you know, what does equanimity mean? I remember particularly when I was first starting to do more teaching, and spending time in Thailand, I would meet with people from Thailand who were a little bit concerned about how meditation would develop in the West. Some of them feared that it would be sort of turned into middle-class escapism, feeling good, relaxing. You know, Is that what equanimity is about? Is equanimity about you know feeling balance as the world burns? Right? So these are some of what we'll look at. You can see how there's potential for equanimity to be misused, you know, so that I feel balanced, I feel calm, but I'm aloof and privileged, right? And clearly that's not what equanimity is really about. But I wanted to name that and we'll come back to that 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 issue as we as we look at things. So interestingly equanimity in Buddhist tradition is is usually a translation of the word Upeka, uh, U-P-E-K-K-H-A, which, which usually uh, is pointed to and it's in the original language as meaning balance. And it's a sense of being able to be balanced and non-reactive no matter what's happening and be able to be responsive. That's really what equanimity is most deeply about. But there are a lot of different dimensions of equanimity and different ways to practice. So um, interestingly, it's mentioned in a number of the famous lists that the Buddha gives, which he gave for teaching purposes, such as the list of the paramis. And equanimity is always the last one. It's the last of the paramis. It's the uh, last of the ways of developing the heart, the Brahma Vihara. It's the uh, last of the seven factors of awakening, which point out the qualities that develop as an expression of awakening and that lead to awakening. in fact, in um, when one is practicing the opening of the heart in Tibetan tradition, they always start with equanimity to have the guidance of wisdom and i've I've really um, personally Loved equanimity, and particularly been interested in in, in working uh, at times on the on the question of social engagement and social service and being in the world and working with conflict. I've been very interested in what's the role of equanimity, and are there are there dangers such that equanimity could be confused? And you may remember traditionally. There are teachings about equanimity that are related to the teachings of the other heart qualities, which is that all of them potentially can be distorted. These are sometimes called the near enemies or the near opposites, or my colleague Heather Sundberg calls these the near misses. So the near miss of kindness is getting really possessive with love and really attached, right? That would be the near enemy. The near enemy of compassion is pity where one feels better than. There's some genuine compassion coming forward, but there's some distortion, it's not genuine. There's a sense of I'm better than, right? And so one example which I like to give is of a a friend who lives in a wheelchair who told the story of being at a supermarket and having a woman come up to him and tell him with some degree of compassion and goodwill, I really admire you so much just for keeping on. If I were in your condition, I would commit suicide. So maybe some genuine compassion, but something a little bit missing, right? That's what the near enemies are about. They're not totally off, but they're significantly off. And the classical way that equanimity is off is in it leading to indifference, the lack of care the lack of compassion. And again, we'll come back to that. That's what we wanna look, look at as we go through. But it's been really um, an interesting one for, for me to look at in partly in the context of um, uh, what does equanimity mean if we actually wanna be engaged. And it's also been important for me in terms of um, finding a lot of equanimity in my father. And I, some of you know him because he used to come to on Wednesdays uh, quite often. But he—I thought he had a lot of equanimity. You know, he was um, um, in World War II. He saw, you know, and experienced a fair amount of suffering. He knew people who had died, and he went through a lot there. Um, you know, at the, after World War II, he wanted to go to medical school. But at that time in U.S. history, uh, they had um, discrimination against people of Jewish background. And they had quotas, which are not always so well remembered, right, in the history. But they actually had these quotas until the early 1960s. And so my father could not go to medical school. But I hope, he seemed to have a lot of equanimity about these different aspects of of life, of his experiences in the war, not getting what he most wanted, and also um, he developed in still fairly young psoriasis. So he had actually red scales all over his body. He seemed to have a certain amount of balance with that, you know. He developed a cancer. Uh, when he was still in kind of middle, middle age and he actually lived, he was given a prognosis, I think, of two years and he lived for 27 years. And so, but he seemed to have a lot of balance. He also, uh, the last, uh, what, the last uh, over 30, 35 years of his life, he was blind he went blind probably from unregulated experiments that he did as a chemist with the federal government right a lot of stuff right way more than I've or many many of us had to handle and yet there was a lot of balance I'm not saying it was perfect equanimity but there's a fair amount of equanimity so partly for that reason I've been really interested in equanimity and in a way I'm kind of honoring my Papa. Um, so let me talk about the qualities that are linked with equanimity and then how we can practice it. And then we'll, then we'll talk together. And I think next week I'll talk particularly about the link between equanimity and the heart and also look, look to some further, uh, deeper ways of practicing beyond the ones that I'll mention today. So first of all, equanimity is about balance. It's about especially being able to have relative balance no matter what happens. So one of the main ways that we practice is in our mindfulness practice, and in our, as we apply that to daily life, we learn how to open and be balanced with all different types of experiences. And so... One of the ways that we learn balance is by experiencing a lack of balance, right It kind of reminds me of the famous quotation from Mark Twain where see if I can get this right, where he says um, 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 yeah, here it is good good judgment um, good judgment." comes from experience. And how does it go? And then experience is about having bad judgment. (laughs) Something like that. So you get the idea. So an interesting part of meditation is that a lot of our learning comes when we encounter lack of balance, reactivity, being stuck, being lost, Again, we don't put this in foremost in our advertising for Spirit Rock. Come, have awful experiences and learn from them. But there's truth to that, isn't there? Maybe not awful, but, but challenging experiences at times. And, and so, so much of our learning about how to be balanced is by actually finding ourselves uh, unbalanced and exploring it. And concretely, it means looking at a lot of the ways that we may um, not be so balanced with difficult thoughts and difficult emotions. So part of equanimity, kind of echoing Mark Twain, comes from being able to learn how to open to difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, to be with anger, to be sometimes with fear or anxiety, to be with... um, sadness, to be with really negative narratives taking over your mind, right? A lot of our practice, and we could take a whole session on each of those themes and how to do that skillfully, but a lot of our learning, a lot of our our development development of equanimity comes from actually not so much by our own free will, but these things coming up in our practice. You know, I know that my initial motivation in meditation was just to be peaceful all the time. Anyone else have that motivation? Okay, if you, you, if you didn't, just, I'd like to talk with you. <laughs> um, but I had that. I, I thought, okay, yeah, there'd be a little bit of ups and downs, but basically I'll just be peaceful, blissful, and this will go on for the rest of my life, right? Okay, not, not so accurate to actually what happened, but what actually occurred when I would, especially when I would do retreats, is that I would have challenging experiences. I'd have, you know, some of you know, who've heard me give talks, know that sometimes at retreats, one retreat I was angry most of the time, but it was in the workable range and I got to study it. Another retreat near the beginning, I had a lot of fear come up and I had to, I had to be with it and study it. And after doing that, these were not the same after that. After really sustained examinations of the difficult states, Um, I was able to be with them more. This is gave a certain measure of equanimity. So part of what I'll invite for the next week is when you have something difficult occur and it's in the workable range, explore it. Again, there's that really important distinction between when something comes up in your experience, you have to ask, is it workable? In other words, can I stay with it and be relatively balanced? Maybe not all the time, but not be totally lost and stuck. If we're totally lost or stuck, we want to actually get out of that mind state or body state or emotional state. But if we can have some balance with it and say, okay, I think I can be with the fear. It's kind of in the workable range. You know, there, There's that distinction which I like between the comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the panic zone <laughs> or the overwhelm zone. And guess where most of our learning occurs? In the discomfort zone. Not what we again, we don't put that in the promotional literature for Spirit Rock. Come, experience more of the discomfort zone, but with mindfulness, and undergo tremendous learning about your discomfort. Okay. Maybe we should change the advertising i don 't know, but what is it to be you know, I mean, it mostly highlights the good things, right? but that 's actually what happens a lot and there can be tremendous learning there. So we try, to, we try to have a sense of there being balance. And balance is not the same as tranquility. It's not the same as just being really, really calm and nothing happening. We can be balanced with things happening really quickly, a lot going on. Essentially, the balance is non-reactivity and awareness. And we can have non-reactivity and awareness when things are moving really, really quickly. So that's really an important thing about equanimity. Equanimity doesn't presuppose that we're just quiet, nothing's happening. We can have a lot happening and still be balanced and mindful. You know, I think I learned this especially once when I did a retreat and I worked in the kitchen and uh, I remember one meal, I think we were serving tacos and there were just a huge number of condiments, and I was running all over the place for an hour or two, but I had just been on retreat, so I was pretty mindful. And I said, oh, I can just be really doing a lot, moving really quickly, but still pretty present, right? So that's an important point. Balance and equanimity can occur when there's a lot happening. It's essentially about non-reactivity being present, okay? So that's, that's an important part of equanimity. Another aspect of equanimity is being increasingly even with whatever's occurring. So that means that I can, again, increasingly be with a wider range of experiences than previously and be someone even-minded with them, not be so uh, reactive or not be so selective saying, oh no, this is happening, ah, you know, and we can have some equanimity. And we can, again, we can take on challenging experiences with equanimity and say, let me, let me take this with equanimity practice. Again, there are a lot of subtleties here because we want to, sometimes when something comes up that's difficult, it's really important to respond skillfully. But sometimes there's not much we can do. Can I be equanimous? I was thinking of one example, I think happened uh, last year, where uh, often on Wednesday mornings I teach here and then I stay at Spirit Rock the rest of the day and do kind of a Sabbath day I try typically I do Sabbaths um, every Wednesday I might be a very small minority of people who do Sabbaths on Wednesdays but as I sometimes like to joke this doesn't interfere with my my busy social life on the weekends so partly joking (laughs) Okay, um, and so I remember you know, and I often go back home to Berkeley around eight thirty or so at night. I stay and I actually go into the retreat area, so we have a staff area for the retreat, and I stay there and sometimes listen to a talk at night, and then eight thirty eight forty five go home and usually the traffic isn 't so bad and uh, one evening, uh, the traffic was bad you know at nine o 'clock nine p m the traffic was backed onto the roads. Uh, going, the traffic going to the Richmond Bridge was backed onto the roads in San Rafael at 9 p.m. This is not customary. And uh, you know, I later turned on the radio and found out that, that a uh, tractor trailer had overturned on the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge. Um, long story short, it took about four hours to get home and so, I don't know whether I had taught on equanimity, but I said, time for equanimity practice. And so, every time I notice, you know, just go to equanimity practice. You know, which could be just being with the reactivity, and there are other ways of doing it. Another way that we'll look at more next time is more similar to loving-kindness practice, where we might say something to ourselves, like, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And then, you know, we can do that practice. Say that, keep on repeating that. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. And go, Urgh. things are this way. Urgh. And then, but it, you stay with it, and something releases a little bit, then say it again. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> I feel like I'm channeling Sylvia a little bit. She does some, some, something like that. And then, you know, so we might do that as a practice. We can do that. That's another way to practice equanimity. Something comes up, it's challenging, you really can't do anything about it. Can you do equanimity practice and have that sense of evenness? One of my favorite expressions of that evenness is in a haiku by Basho, uh, the great Japanese haiku writer, This is one of my favorite ones. He says, um, remember, haikus are short, so you have to listen right now. Okay, fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Okay, Think of this as an equanimity haiku. And why is it an equanimity haiku? Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Okay, sorry for the language, uh, but uh, why is this an equanimity haiku? He can't change it, and he's non-reactive, right? He's non-reactive. So, um, um, and he's just describing the circumstances, just very simply and clearly. Okay. Another aspect of equanimity is unshakability that someone who is a quantumist is not easily shaken. So the person can really be with this wide range of things and keep keep a kind of balance. It you know, can, really, can really work in that way. Uh, one of the stories that I like a lot came from um, one of my first mentors named Larry Rosenberg who Uh, described um, being um, uh, the teacher for a Zen retreat that was supposed to happen after Christmas, but no one had signed up for it. And his Zen teacher told him to teach the retreat even though there was no one there. And so he did all, he said, do all the talks, do all the bowing and give your full Dharma talks even though no one is there. And Larry said that he did that and felt pretty foolish for the first day or two but then after a while something sunk in and he learned something about equanimity that he could actually keep his own vision his own constancy no matter what was happening. There is a very important aspect of uh, equanimity that has to do with understanding and wisdom that we can actually have some sense as to why things are happening and have some perspective on why things are happening that can help us to not be so reactive you know and you know this could be you know connected for example you have a difficulty with someone else maybe you have empathy with that person and you have a sense of why that person might be acting as the person does maybe understanding that person rather than just reacting because we're not getting what we want. And so part of equanimity comes from that, that quality of understanding, um, keeping a kind of inter, inner center. And that, you know, that cultivation of wisdom can really help having kind of a long view. When I, when I interviewed a lot of uh, uh, people doing service work or activism and asked them, about uh, how they kept balanced with all the ups and downs. The response I got from a lot of people was to have a sense of why things are happening, particularly to have a sense of the long haul. Very crucial for our times, right? To have a sense of the long haul that I'm not gonna get so upset about this not going like I want or this or that not going like I want, but I can actually have a sense of a long view, and also have a sense of causes and conditions. I can have a sense of why this is happening. I, you know, I talked with people who had been involved with things for decades, with all the ups and downs. I remember talking with Dr. ratney from Sri Lanka, who had been with an organization called Sovardaya for, I think at that point, uh, four or five decades. Sometimes criticized, and he said, I try to keep that sense of, Always learning, always having the sense of a long haul, and others particularly talked about wanting to see causes and conditions. And I know that's been valuable for me sometimes when I've had interpersonal challenges. To again to have that more empathic understanding of why it's difficult both for someone else and for me. Can I do that? So there is a quality also with equanimity of faith and confidence. We have some faith and confidence that lets us not be so desperately clinging to this or that outcome. We have some sense of things being workable. So can we bring this to places where we get impatient or where, where we seem to be attached to this outcome or that outcome? Can we have some sense of things working out? And that's not easy, is it? You know? And so again, we could apply this to places where we seem to get a little unbalanced because we think, oh, this outcome has to happen and it's not happening, ah, right? Anyone ever experienced that in the last 24 hours, (laughs) right? And so this would be part of equanimity practice. And it's also important to mention that equanimity particularly is connected with qualities of the heart. It's not totally a wisdom quality. And this comes out very much in the way that equanimity is associated Uh, in the teachings of the nature of the awakened heart with loving kindness, compassion, and joy. And it uh, is actually said in those teachings that mature equanimity to overcome the potential uh, distortion of indifference has to integrate as well loving kindness and compassion and joy. So mature equanimity has all of those qualities. And I I should say also that that mature equanimity is responsive. It's not a matter of sitting on the sidelines and being balanced, but rather that actual skillful action depends on equanimity. And we think of many of the people probably we most admire who acted in the world skillfully have had a lot of equanimity. Think of someone like Dr. King, right? or maybe Nelson Mandela, right? They may have uh, all sorts of ups and downs, but there is like an inner center and there's an inner vision that keeps them. You know, King's vision of the beloved community would be very, very helpful in the, all the ups and downs. So we can ask, do I have my own inner vision that helps me with the ups and downs? Again, that could be connected with faith, but it's also a way that we can have a way of, with equanimity, of actually responding. Equanimity is not about indifference again. So how to practice equanimity? What are some of the, what are some of the ways of concretely practicing? And I've mentioned the way that in a sense, um, equanimity is really a fruit of our normal mindfulness practice that it's um, uh, that it comes really from really just applying the uh, instructions. Can I be with mindfulness and really stay with what's difficult? Can I be mindful and, not, and watch where I simply want what's pleasant and don't want what's unpleasant? Can I be mindful with the unpleasant? Unpleasant emotions, difficult emotions, difficult thoughts, difficult... Um, body states. Can I do that? Can I work with that? In following those instructions, one will learn equanimity. You know, just, in, just in the ordinary practice of mindfulness. Not easy, not really maybe what we want, but that's the way that we will develop equanimity. And so we could typically, especially look out in our meditation practice this week, can I work with the challenging states in my experience? and work, try to bring mindfulness to them again if they're within the range of um, being workable? Can I do that? You know, can I particularly take on the challenging emotions like anger, sadness, fear, as well as negative uh, stories in my mind, negative narratives? Can I work with them? And so part of of the way of working is to uh, just be with the challenging experiences. One of those challenging experiences that we can particularly look out for is any form of reactivity. Can I be with my mind not liking this and reacting? And can I actually study it? Can I take reactivity, whether in meditation or in the flow of daily life, as a starting point for uh, practice? rather than just looking for what I want. Can I do that? Can you take that on as a practice? Can you set an intention at the beginning of the day, I'm gonna try to track whenever my mind becomes reactive and take this as a way of practice. This is a very quick way to explore and develop equanimity. Can I do that? There's a particular teaching related to that that is a special teaching for equanimity. And that's the teaching of watching out for what are called the eight worldly whims or the eight worldly conditions. These are eight states, uh, some of them positive, some of them negative, which tend to toss us around like winds. And they are uh, gain and loss, praise and blame, um, pleasant and unpleasant and having a good reputation or a bad reputation, how we're looked at, right? And those can really toss us around. So it's gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasant and unpleasant, and a sense of uh, having good, a good story about us or a bad story about us. And so we can actually look out for each of these and see when they come, because these are the ones that are gonna basically knock us off our equanimity. And so we can look for them. And I think particularly for a lot of us, praise and blame are really big ones, right? That we have that what the psychologists call the negativity bias. It's that we will, we will go way out of our way to look for any hint of criticism. We won't like it, but we'll do that. You know? I remember one time that I was um, uh, co-organizing a summer institute for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. We had 100 people Everything seemed to be going well. We, we did a mid, uh, we, it was a seven-day workshop. We did a, a mid-workshop evaluation. We had like 5% of the feedback was somewhat critical. 95% was really positive. All the organizers immediately went right to the negative. We focused on that. Anyone know that pattern? All right. And so we can look out for that. We can look, okay, but the key thing is to really name, okay, there's praise and blame. Oh, there's gain and loss or let's say there's gain. Something good happened. Oh, great. Can I just be with that? Something negative happened. Can I just be with that? Again, it doesn't mean not to be responsive, but can I be responsive and then watch my mind state? Not so easy, right? Can I work with that with um, pleasant and unpleasant? Can I work with that when I you know, seem to, something I do and some, someone says something more negative about me or positive? And again, we wanna keep learning from other people's feedback, but does this knock us off our inner center? Maybe because of unresolved parental attachment issues. Okay. And that's actually part, partly joking partly very serious you know? and so, so we can practice by, by looking at the uh, ways that we get knocked around by the worldly winds again uh, gain and loss praise and blame pleasure and displeasure and good views about us or bad views about ourselves it's related, to, related to praise and blame Another way that we can uh, practice is to, and this goes into some of the deeper forms of practice, is to actually develop further our insight into a few areas. One of them is reactivity, really studying our reactivity. Another one is to track impermanence, to really track how things arise and pass away and notice uh, notice impermanence more clearly. It's said that the insight that we have into how things change and how we actually often don't want things to change can really open us up for greater equanimity. Same thing with exploring reactivity. Another doorway is to explore our own self image, our, our own thoughts about ourselves again that could be related very much to praise and blame and having good reputation or bad reputation so you can see that all of this is pointing to the cultivation of an inner center that is increasingly unshaken but also responsive it's a very um, central way of talking about one of the the core goals of our practice. I think that's why equanimity is mentioned at the end of so many of the lists because it represents a very mature capacity in our minds. Can we have that inner center that's non-reactive that can be increasingly with more and more difficult things while being non-reactive and responsive? So it's a tall order, isn't it? And so what's important for us is really that we can see how to train further in that, that we can train in these ways that we've mentioned, partly just by the normal staying with the instructions of our practice. Be mindful of everything, study it. And particularly when it's in the workable range. If it's not in the workable range, know how to come back to balance. If it's in the workable range, study everything. Increasingly bring challenging states of mind, body, and heart into your practice so you study those so you work with them and in in a way increase the capacity of what you can be non-reactive centered and responsive with can we be centered non-reactive and responsive with more and more um, types of experiences including challenges that's really what equanimity is pointing to And it's a very ancient practice, not just about meditation, but very much about daily life. And it's not easy, it takes time, and it's wonderful to develop more. Okay, so I'll stop. So thank you. I'll just mention that one of my equanimity practices comes in calling people back before the talk begins. That's, sometimes challenging them my equanimity. Okay, won't they come back? Okay, come, come back, please. <laughs> okay. So thoughts or reflections or questions about equanimity practice? And we'll wait for the microphone.
1: Um, one of the things I've found thinking about equanimity is the need to prioritize your daily events or whatever because so much of what you think is necessary especially for women who try to impress with cooking and cleaning and decorating it's really not necessary and all the stress that you create and therefore you knock yourself off balance prioritizing things that are not necessary and that in most respects aren't even appreciated yeah um and that can I mean that's just one little example but um in this to do age of shop to you drop and whatever there's so much that um just doesn't need to be done and and when you don't do it you realize later why did I ever think that that was necessary to and it's usually looking for approval from others yeah um And um, so that's all, priority.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot in what you said. Uh, I mean, I I was thinking that um, mostly what I've talked about is sort of the um, inner dimension of cultivating equanimity. But there are also ways in which certain ways we set up our lives and certain ways that the society is set up could be... um, negative in relation to equanimity, that having too much to do, making it harder to pay attention, would tend to uh, make equanimity harder. And so that sense, I think, that what you're pointing to is a very crucial part of practice. I've, I've personally noticed it a lot and I've been thinking a lot about it. Uh, there are, again, different dimensions to it, but one of them is... Um, what conditions lead to greater stress, which make equanimity harder? You know, and trying to do too much is um, very common. And of course, it's not just a personal choice, right? That, you know, for example, I've done some consulting with, um, with Kaiser, for example, and with some of the departments there. And I I found myself interestingly talking about how to use mindfulness and some of the practices, but we acknowledged at the beginning, beginning that there were systemic issues such as overwork or at least perceived overwork that made uh, living with less stress more difficult, right? And so there actually are ways that the society is set up, some of it related to gender considerations. You know, um, uh, you know I, I actually, uh, I read an old review just yesterday of Sheryl Sandberg's book, uh, Lean In, right? Which is particularly directed towards women working in, in business and organizations. And the uh, reviewer basically was very complimentary but said that the larger issue, which was not addressed at all, was the systemic, the systemic issue, such as might organizations and businesses be different so there's not so much demand on people, right? That was not addressed in the book. Interesting, right? So, so um, I think there are a lot of systemic issues. There are a lot of ways that even within the systems, we can make choices and prioritize. So it's a lot there. Is equanimity harder in late declining capitalism than it used to be partly joke partly serious
2: yeah um, I like what the subject of equanimity yeah. I was a nurse for 45 years and of course you know I worked for Kaiser for 20 years and and I would hear you know um, just in the unit, oh we used to have 20 minutes to see a patient. Now we have fifteen. Now we have ten. And I know myself, as a patient right now, it's like it's very difficult in the medical system. You know, people—they're either on the computer because they have to, it's all timed. They're on the computer, and there—there there was a sense in the old days where you walked in and someone. How are you doing? Are you having any reaction to anything? are you you know the questions that were asked are yeah. very different from today Today is kind of like okay, I'm putting in the computer. you're taking this med. I'm kind of like, whoa, you know it's so it's um uh, it's almost you know to actually work in that environment and to talk you know do some of the things um and mindfulness I think is just really challenging there's a lot of fear and you just look at people's face you can tell that they're not real calm Mm. so
0: yeah so again pointing to some of the systemic issues but you know even within that we can cultivate as much equanimity as possible but there are conditions which make it harder that's that's the point yeah please Um,
2: one of the things that I find is that uh, when I'm feeling unbalanced I'll make myself busy i'll just do more and more. oh, that takes my mind off of it, yeah. so I'm ignoring it, not really delving into it. I'm just busying myself and um that's that's like a coping mechanism, I suppose, but um I think it's just awareness. um you have anything to say about that?
0: yeah, yeah, so that would be something to to track, right. To what extent when I get reactive or something bothers me, do I uh, pay attention and use mindfulness, and to what extent do I have a habit that uh, makes me feel a little better, but doesn't, uh, doesn't have me inquiring and being mindful? You know? and, and then so the, the the invitation would be to notice those. Instances and see if you can actually say, okay, right now I want to try to be mindful. And again, that distinction between when it's workable and not workable is really important.
2: Yeah. Um, I um, Wednesday morning uh, midday, I go to a women's group. Yeah. And particularly today, um, the woman that leads it, it's going to be out. And she sent a text saying that she was not going to attend. So she told us who was going to lead the group, and my reaction was right away, um, I'm not going.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and um, Because I don't seem to connect with this person. But being here today, um, I think it's going to be a good um, <laughs> challenge. <laughs> and I am actually going to go, <laughs> even though I was determined... That I was not going to attend, but I think it's going to be uh, good practice to observe (laughs) and try to. (laughs) Okay,
0: so you're ready for advanced practice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) And just yeah, you you might not people people uh, ask you, you know, how are you doing? Why are you here? And say, yes, I'm. I'm only here for my equanimity practice. (laughs) Good, <laughs> okay, please Is it on? Why don't we we have another one we can use Okay yes.
1: um, the word that you used uh, maturity really stood out to me yeah um, and I'm a new mom and I was thinking sort of the parent archetype that we would most aspire to or sort of have in our image really i think embodies that sense of equanimity where it's certainly not indifferent um but there is that like solidity and maturity to um to the idea so i was just thinking of that like if i think of the parent that i want to be that kind of i get the felt sense of what equanimity is
0: that's right i mean that's those are you know a lot of our roles we can have a sense that to uh really uh, um, express those roles in a mature, developed uh, uh, way has a lot to do with equanimity. You know, that at a certain point, as a parent, you've seen a lot. <laughs> and things aren't going to phase you and, say, and you say, okay, okay. This is happening. Got it. <clears throat> know that one. Right? The same thing could be as a teacher or a psychotherapist or a nurse. Right? That, that we... Uh, that we build up a certain um, level of experience, especially if we take everything as learning and not simply as getting our way, right? And then so equanimity is going to be very central to being a a quote-unquote good parent, isn't it? And it's going to come from having looked at things and had some inquiry and uh, been able to be increasingly skillful with a very wide range of... uh, uh, phenomena occurring. Again, same for probably a lot of, most of our work, professions, roles, you know. In fact, one of the uh, ways that we sometimes think of equanimity is like being a wise grandmother who has seen everything under the sun but still cares, right? It doesn't lead to indifference or aloofness, right? There's still that kind heart but there's a sense of, okay, you know, nothing's going to phase that that one (laughs) right so so thank you for bringing that in we can have those different archetypes you know maybe of the healer or the same thing I think I can I can relate to as a teacher that as I teach and you know work with people over the years just more and more experience if I've opened to it uh, makes me in a sense more equanimous you know I was actually talking with some younger teachers that we were training at a retreat and and um Person was telling me, "Yeah, I could see that there were some things that just came up doing one-on-ones at retreats that would have flustered me a little bit, but you, you're just you're just sitting there. Okay, okay. So, so either there's equanimity, or it's a good facade. So, please,
3: <clears throat> I had a lesson in equanimity coming back from Marin Sangha on Sunday night. Oh yeah, when." um, I was. They, they had closed the road, and the poli- Santa Fe Police Department was on San Pedro Road. And I drove up to the policeman and I said, "Is the road closed?" And he looked at me and said, "Would I be here if it wasn't?" And and then I th- <laughs> do I, uh, And I go, "Do I have to go around China Camp?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, well I don't do that." So <laughs> <clears throat> then I. It was kind of fun because Donald had a Dharma talk in the dark because the guy had hit the um, light pole, the power pole. Someone,
0: someone had hit the light pole. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah, call- it actually be like here, it was at night, all the lights went out, but I I still kept on with my talk even though I couldn't see my notes.
3: <laughs> I, I called it Donald's Dharma in the Dark. <laughs> and I think we could it, advance it to either a day long or a night long, <laughs> but... It was really, actually, really good. But then I decided that, of course, being a Marin County local, I could drive into the hills and get around the um, roadblock. And then, of course, the cops knew that I was going to do that. So there was another cop stationed at the bottom of Balboa turning people around. <laughs> and I really, and then I finally said, well, I better get down China camp because, and I was exhausted, actually, i <clears throat> dealt with family on Thanksgiving I had, we had gone to Tahoe. It was I did not want to drive around China camp on sunday night, and it was so interesting that, from being at the Dharma talk at Marin Sanga and being in a really great shape, how I flipped and just was just upset that I had to drive around China camp it was not a like a four hour wait like you had it was but it was still, <clears throat> and I had to watch it what I had to do was. I really had to work in a compassion for the guy who hit the light pole. That's yeah, yeah. where I t- went because that's I great. was
0: yeah. That's where I went. I so you I, so you you um, in the midst of all this, some of your practice came back. That's right. Anyone else in that similar situation? <laughs> yeah, and of course I I was I didn't have the benefit of knowing the road around China Camp, so I didn't know where I was going. I just had trust that it would. Lead somewhere. <laughs> Which mo- most roads do. <laughs> Some do not. <laughs> yeah be time for thank you. yeah. But the, the key thing is that you know part of the reason for being here and for, again, uh, remember, maybe remembering the intention to cultivate equanimity, is that in such situations, when you were reporting it, you know maybe you were stuck reactive for a while, but your practice came back. In some way, and that's that's what we want. That's why that's why we meet together. Right? That's why we connect. That's why. We can, if we were doing this all on our own without these sort of things, it'd be way harder.
1: Right?
0: Okay, maybe last one. Yeah, I'd like to thank thank you for that last comment.
3: Um, when I was here last time, I spoke of my my judgmental self, and I spoke of of uh, my compassionate self with my daughter bringing her new boyfriend home for thanksgiving well i wasn't as judgmental as i normally would have been having been here the day before yeah and i was not nearly as compassionate as i would have liked to have been and fell into that immature equanimity if you will of just not caring
0: right although that's not the four-letter word i used yeah yeah thank you very thank you yeah so the the main the main thing is just to keep noticing you know, keep practicing, we really have a trust in our own deep wisdom. And, he, and that's part of that faith aspect uh, and confidence aspect of equanimity. That as we practice more, even when we feel a little bit lost, there's something in us maybe which can have some confidence that if I, that if I just pay attention and stay with it, and of course it's good to come here, connect with others, not be entirely on one's own but, but at certain moments that <clears throat> all, all of this will, it will result in, in having some confidence even when things aren't going our way the confidence just to keep paying attention and then things happen like oh out of irritation and things not going my way some compassion arises that's that's the result of practice and again I think it's a main reason why we meet regularly that it supports that so what I want to ask you to do is to: How many of you would like to take on equanimity practice in the next week, in some way? Because I like that's why I like to discuss a topic for more than one week. And um, if you didn't raise your hand now, you can still take it on. <laughs> and and let me let me invite you to consider the options which I named because I, I named a lot of types of equanimity practice, and just see what the one is that most appeals. One way is simply um, trying to bring mindfulness and care, to everything that's occurring and particularly when you might be having something unpleasant or there might be reactivity, something challenging. So one way is to bring attention to your experience Um, especially when things are challenging or there's reactivity. Another expression of that would be to particularly look at difficult emotions or mind states, body states, and try to see if you can actually explore those in a balanced way. Another way of practicing is particularly working with this teaching of the eight worldly whims, praise and blame, gain and loss, what I call fame and disrepute or uh, pleasure and pain. And you can actually have the intention to look out for those to the extent that those knock you around. And one of the benefits there is that we're also including how the positive or the pleasant can also knock us around. We usually only think of the difficult or negative in that way, but very clear in Buddhist teachings that it's both. And maybe that's enough. See which of those appeal to you and maybe set an intention for how you might like to work with equanimity practice and bringing up the intention To cultivate equanimity during the day, maybe in the morning, maybe once or twice during the day is one way to support that. So see which kind of practice you're inclined to and set your intention for the next period of time next week. Close by remembering that we do this practice very much for ourselves but also for others and um, I'll put my hands together like this it's traditional, you don't have to do this if you don't want but I'll do this and may our cultivation of equanimity be of benefit to us may it be of benefit to those in our circles and then beyond those circles may it be of benefit Ultimately, to all beings in known and unknown ways, remembering always that we are part of all beings. So, happy Equanimity Week. (laughs) Thank you.